If you will, this evening, turn with me again into the book of Jude, the little book of Jude this evening. And uh, I want to talk about living clean in a dirty world for a few moments tonight, if I may. Living clean in a dirty world. I read somewhere that the Great Wall of China was penetrated at least three times by enemies. And the reason that the Great Wall of China was penetrated by the enemy was because each time the guards on the wall were bribed. If we're going to have a strong defense, we must have a strong offense. If we're going to be a a defense that's strong, it's got to be a people that's strong as well. And today, that works also in our military, but also works when it comes to the spiritual things of the life. If we're going to have a strong church to be able to recognize false doctrine, to repel false doctrines and turn away apostates, that means that we're going to have to know the Word of God, to be able to discern what is of God and what is of the devil, to understand the difference between the soul ministering and the Spirit of God ministering through someone, And to do that, we have got to have the engrafted Word of God within our lives that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy of our soul. Now, with that being said, brothers and sisters, there's always a danger of stumbling. And to stumble is being close to a fall. And Jude said in verse 20 to be careful that we follow his instructions that we would not fall in our walk with God. Now, remember... Jude desired to write an epistle about a common salvation. But he understood that Peter had written about false teachers, apostates, coming into the church. When he got ready to write the epistle about a common salvation, he said, you know what? Peter wrote about apostates and false teachers coming into the church. They're already here. And that's the premise of what Jude was writing about, the false teachers and apostates that were already within the church. Now, in this final section of the book of Jude, uh, he he gives us four instructions to follow if we're going to stand against the apostates and resist the teaching of the apostates and false teachers in this last day. Look with me in Jude 17 through 19. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit." From the very beginning of time, since the creation of man, Satan has always tried to go against the juggler vein of God's Word. He's attacked God's Word. He's tried to get people to to compromise God's Word, to twist God's Word, to take God's Word out of context. He always goes for the Word of God. When Satan came to Eve in the very beginning, he said, Yea, hath God said. Once we begin to question God's Word in any capacity, we're open for any other suggestion or attack that Satan may send our way. One way that we can have, one way that we can resist the lies of the devil is by simply knowing the truth of what the Word of God has to say for us. In Isaiah 8.20 it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. 
Remember who gave the word. Remember what he said there in verse 17? Now Jesus had many disciples, but he had fewer apostles. An apostle simply means one who is sent with a commission. An apostle was someone who had to eyewitness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An apostle was someone who walked with Jesus, someone who was taught by Jesus, someone who saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And an apostle was someone that had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then they were called to be sent into the world that they might take the message, their eyewitness message, if you will, into places where the gospel had not been preached before for a testimony of the power of the living God. Notice if you will. Wherever there is the authentic, there is always the danger for the counterfeit. Just as there were counterfeit prophets of the Old Testament, there are and there shall be counterfeit prophets in the New Testament and even in the church age. I may have shared this before, but it comes to mind right now. A couple, three years ago, a precious lady and husband <clears throat> walked into this building I stayed a couple of services, and the lady told me after one service, she said, Pastor, <coughs> the Lord uses me in the prophetic. Am I allowed to use my gift? And I didn't know her from Adam's house. Get it? I thought I was being nice. I said, ma'am, I said, how's your prayer life? What's that got to do with it? I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, to hear from God, uh, we better be able to talk to God and hear from Him. And to me, if we don't have a prayer life, I don't understand how the Lord can speak to us. I said, let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet? Well, what's the difference? I said, well, in the Old Testament, if they prophesied and got it wrong, they got stoned. And I said, in the New Testament, if they got it wrong, they set them down. Which are you? She never came back. I wasn't trying to be ugly. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. There's a lot of people claim to be apostles that are not. A lot of folk claim to be prophets that are not. And if you and I will stay tuned up to the Word of God and let the Word of God be the judge, we can save ourselves an awful lot of trouble. False apostles and false teachers came in the early church. They began to appear on the scene, so it was necessary in the early church to develop some type of a system that they could tell the true apostle from the counterfeit apostle. They could, they could tell the true writing of God's Word from the false writing of God's Word. Now, there were a lot of so-called epistles that were written by so-called apostles that did not meet the test of the scriptures to say this is of God. If you want to know something's of God, we have to ask yourself, what did the apostles say about it? What did the apostles, and that's what we have the word of God for, what did the apostles teach? When the church assembled the New Testament books, they, they took the, the authentic words that the apostles said and that was the litany. That was the test. What did the apostles say? And you've got some of these other books that were written. They were, they were, there was another epistle written to Corinthians, to the church of Corinth. There were other epistles that were written to other books. And it confused the people because what they were writing contradicted 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. And therefore did not make the scripture, did not make part of the Bible. Now Jude mentions the words that were spoken by the apostles, which means the original epistles. We, we, we understand that we have those epistles. We have the Old Testament. And if we want to know what the Bible says about something, we go strictly to the Word of God. When somebody says, oh, I've got a brand new revelation from the Lord. If you and I will simply take that revelation of the so-called Lord and, and, and look at that through the Word of God, nine times out of ten we will find out it was probably a false revelation. 
I told a guy one time, one good burp and that revelation might go away because you probably had too much pizza the night before. Remember who gave the word. Secondly, remember what they said in verse 18. They prophesied in the last days mockers would come who would deny the word of God. Now, Peter had already talked about them denying the word of God. Jude talked about them denying the word of God. And then Paul and James talked about people denying the word of God and apostate and false teaching coming in. Remember also Jesus said on several occasions, false teachers will come. See that you be not deceived. If it, if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. If deception was not possible, Jesus would have never warned us of it. Jesus said if they say, I am Christ, don't go talking to them. And that's not to say like the Jim Joneses of this world or the Paul Young, uh, the Paul Sung Youngs, Moon and all those people, I'm Christ. We know that's lies. We know that's false. But there's a lot of people out there, preachers, that claim to go, preach in the name of Jesus who are teaching with a forked tongue. And they're saying he's Christ, but their teaching is poison. And that, my friend, is where we've got to be careful. There's so many people that are so full of, have, have such charisma in their teaching. And they shine, and they're brilliant, they're intellectually smart. I mean, they, 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 have a, they have degrees by their name, and nothing wrong with that. But they're very highly educated people, and they can dissect the Word of God. They can take the Greek and the Hebrew, and they can exegete it. And it's wonderful, but sometimes their teaching can still be off the wall. Amen. I had a professor at Regent University when I was working on my doctorate. The man was brilliant. He, he's sharp as a tack. He'd written books. He was from England, Dr. Hoffman. And I, he asked a question in class, and I gave the answer, and he said, young man, that's not what that means. I went, oh, okay, what does it mean? So he goes into the Hebrew, and he breaks that thing down and breaks it down and breaks it down to where to me explained it away. And I said, thank you for that. I said, I have a question. I said, okay. I don't mean to be ugly when I say these things. People, I'm sorry. I don't, it's just the old mountain in me, I guess. I said, let me ask you a question, Dr. Hoffman. I said, there was a guy that came to our church a few weeks ago. I said, he did a revival for us. He wore bibbed overalls. He took his shoes off and he preached in his stocking feet. And I said, he don't know Greek and he doesn't know Hebrew. He simply reads the King James Version for what it says. And he interprets it in, in what I felt to be biblically sound. I said, people were saved. People were healed. People were baptized in the Holy Spirit. I said, how come a God like that we see signs and wonders following? I said, and sometimes we have people in the body of Christ that explain the Word of God away through Hebrew and Greek, and they don't seem to have enough power in their life to blow the fuzz off a peanut. And he bowed his head. He looked up and he said, son, we need them both. I went, okay. And then I felt awful. I thought, dear Lord, he probably thought I cut him. That's not what I meant. So I apologized to him the next day. And he said, oh, the wife and I, we had a spot of tea last night. And we joked about it. We laughed about it. So he was okay. But you're going to get I think sometimes the Word of God should be of faith. I don't think the Word of God is meant to be taken apart. And I know there's a fine line between properly interpreting God's Word. But can't we still read the Hebrew and Greek and still find the power in it? Can't we still read the Hebrew and Greek and still find the anointing in it? Can't we still read the Hebrew and Greek and still find flavor in it and food in it? I think we can. It's just I find that some of these guys, not Dr. Hoffman, but some of these guys can take it so far to the wrong way that there's a thing in, in, in biblical interpretation called 
eisegesis, exegesis. Exegesis is fine, but they begin to apply what's called eisegesis, where they make it read what it doesn't read because they found another word, uh, you know, down here is a great-grandfather somewhere that would, would put up here in this text, and it don't mean the same. I know I'm confused, I don't mean to do that. But anyway, I hope you get what I'm trying to say. When a warning is given so many times about false doctrine, false teaching, apostates, we better give here to what it says. Now, the phrase uh, in 2 Peter 3, 3, Jude 16 and 18 says, walking after their own lust. It explains why the apostate denies the truth of God's word. You know why? They don't want God to tell them how to live. Bottom line. They don't want God to tell them how to live. They want to satisfy their own sinful desires, and the Word of God condemns the way they live. Did the Word of God convict you? It convicted me. Did the Word of God say, hey, I'm missing the mark? It did that to me. The Word of God's like a mirror. I looked into it and said, I'm not living up to what God requires or what God expects of my life to be. And therefore, I'm, I must be wrong because the Word of God isn't. But if we, have a, if we have our own moral compass, and if we created this God in our own image... Therefore, we don't have to give an account to the God we've created. And therefore, people pick and choose which scriptures they're going to use, and pick and choose which scripture they like, and they chunk the rest of them. That's not going to work, friends. That's not going to work. When a person says, intellectually, I have a problem with the Word of God, well, they probably have a moral problem with the Word of God, too. If they have an intellectual problem with the Word of God, they're probably going to have a moral problem. The only way that we can know the truth of God's Word is by living the truth of God's Word. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then ask what you will, it'll be done. Now, Satan can substitute his own lies for God's word. He's done it all of the career of humanity, trying to substitute his own lies for God's word. Now, this week, I'll almost guarantee you, every one of us in this room, if we'll be honest, we've wrestled at some place with God's word. We wrestled someplace with God's Word. We would quote the Word of God. For instance, there's therefore now no condemnation. But what does the enemy tell you? And what do we tend to believe more than we believe the Word of God? We believe what we feel most of the time, don't we? We're eat up with condemnation, and the more we try to rebuke it, he don't want to rebuke. The more we saturate ourselves with the Word of God, the more it just seems to drain out of us. But here's where the battle comes in. Jesus never one time argued with Satan. When he was led of the Spirit of God into the wilderness and tempted for 40 days, and Satan said, if you're this, do that, he didn't argue. He quoted the Word of God and stood on it. If you're the Son of God, go up to this temple and jump off. The angels will catch you. He didn't argue with him. He quoted the Word of God to him. If you're hungry, make these stones bread. The Word of God. Bow down and worship me. The Word of God. Each and every time he said it, he believed it, that settled it. And when you and I can come to the place knowing that the devil will always try us. And friend, as long as he's chasing you, he does not have you. With me. As long as he chases you, he doesn't have you. But we're going to battle God's word against the enemy of our soul to the day we die. He's going to try to twist the word. He's going to try to take the word out of your heart. He's going to try to, to, to make the word of God not uh, mean what it means. He's going to do all these things. He's always attacked the word of God. But if you and I will maintain and stand on God's word, knowing the God who gave us that word will do exceeding and abundantly above all we ask or think. And sometimes we quote God's word and we're waiting for a feeling to come over us. We're full of condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation. Christ Jesus, 
We're waiting for that feeling to leave. It may not leave. Who said it had to leave? I drive a stake in the ground and say, Devil, right here at this stake, God heard my prayer. And I'm as clean as the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, can make me. And there's no condemnation in my life, and you're defeated. I might walk away not feeling good at all. Then I hear that old subtle voice. I go right back and say, you are a liar. The Word of God right here forgave me. This is my memorial. This is my stick in the ground. That is fighting the good fight of faith. We're not to fight the devil. He'll win. We're to fight the good fight of faith. Nowhere does the scripture say we're to fight the devil. We're to fight the good fight of faith. And faith, God's given to every man the measure of faith that needs to be saved. And our faith is not what I feel. My faith is in not what I know. My faith is in the word of God. Yeah. It's the word that defeats the devil, not my feeling. It's the word that defeats the devil, not my emotions. It's the word that defeats the devil. And I thank God for that this evening. Satan can substitute his own lies to get the truth of God's word out of my life. Remember why they said it. He said, remember who, 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 who gave you the word? Remember what they said? And he said, remember why they said it. Verse 19. The false teachers want to divide the church and pull the people out of fellowship with God's people and pull them into fellowship with that which is wrong. Fellowship with that which is bad. Notice also in Acts 20, 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Their appeal is like this. Come with us. Our teachings deeper than your church. Come to us. We understand prophecy better than you all do. Come to us. We know how to live a Christian life better than you all do. That's the way it starts. And you know what? A lot of people are hungry, and they want to see, is the grass greener on the other side? Let me tell you, if the grass is green in the yard, it's probably because it's on top of a septic tank. Okay? What they're trying to say basically is they offer a higher quality of religion than the apostles themselves had. That's what it boils down to. Not only are the false teachers divide the church, but they also deceive the church. The Bible said they're sensual, having not the spirit. Now the word sensual means the opposite of spiritual. The apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. It's translated natural. The Greek word there, uh, which I can't pronounce it, but there it is. It means soulish, soulish. Because false teachers didn't have the Spirit of God, they had to function in their own natural, soulish power. With me? Now, because, because of that, this is the danger we have in church today. One of the tragedies of modern-day Christianity is many Christians are not able to discern between Spirit-empowered ministry and soulish, sensual ministry. There's so much religious showmanship these days that many Christians are deceived and confused. I want that to sink in. Just as there was false fire in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there's a lot of false fire behind pulpits and lecturings and pews in the modern day church as well. How can we know the difference between soulish ministry and spiritual? By trusting the Word of God. The Bible said the Word of God in, in, in Hebrews 4.12 is able to divide the soul and the spirit. And by paying close attention to the witness of the spirit that's within us. 
There's something about living a spirit-filled life and something about living in the Word of God. And that is, when something false comes your way, on the inside, something of the Holy Spirit rises. People often say, if I can just study all the cults, I'll know the bad ones. Well, let me tell you something. There's a danger in that as well, I think. Amen. Because you see, I've been told, I don't know how true it is, but I've been told through the years that sometimes bankers, they will put them in vaults with real money, and they handle the real money, and they know the real money so much that they slip them a false one. The texture is different. I don't know if that's true. I've been told that all my life. But what I'm saying, when you and I understand the truth, when we have a good handle, a good working knowledge of the Spirit of God and a good understanding of the Word of God, we know false when it comes. My wife can testify to this. There's been many times in our marriage that we have gone into a restaurant, we have gone somewhere and outdoors in public or something, and our spirit got this vexed spirit among us and we knew something was not right. We were down doing a Pentecostal service down in the what was the Virgin Islands, honey? I can't remember. The Virgin Islands. We did a Pentecostal revival down there when we first came to New Life about 16 years ago. And she and I was out one day walking, and we walked down by the beach, and the further we walked around that beach, the more, more of a vexed spirit we got. Broad daylight. And we turned around and hijacked it back to the place we were staying. And that night, the man told us, it was pastor of the pastor church, said, oh, enjoy the island, but don't go down there. Why? Oh, bad stuff goes on. Well, we knew that already. Aren't you grateful that you serve a God that can warn you and a God that can give you some discernment along the way? That's why it's important that we know God's Word and we read it to be wise, we believe it to be safe, and we practice it in order to be holy. Now, let me hasten. There's a lot I want to say about this, if I may. A soulish ministry magnifies man. A spiritual ministry glorifies the Lord. A spiritual ministry builds up the body of Christ, whereas a soulish ministry is merely manufacturing ministry, whether it's entertainment at best or intellectual exercise of religion at worst. We don't need manufactured entertainment. We don't need manufactured spirituality. We don't need something worked up through the auspices of the flesh. We need and must have something that comes through the integrity of God's Word. And to me, that's the difference between a spiritual ministry and a soulish or a sensual ministry uh, that Jude is talking about. It takes the Spirit of God to minister to our spirits. And it edifies the body of Christ. It don't entertain us. It doesn't give us an emotional buzz. It speaks and ministers to the heart of our life. Remember God's Word. Secondly, build your Christian life. Now, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The Christian life, you never stand still. If you're standing still, you're going backwards. The Christian life is no fence to straddle. The devil owns the fence anyway. If you do not take care of a house, it will deteriorate. Yes. I don't know what it is. It, it's amazing. It just, if nobody's living there, it's going to start deteriorating. The apostates are in the business of tearing down. Each Christian, each church, 
But it's important for every one of us as Christians to build ourselves up in the most holy faith and to build the church up in the most holy faith as well. Now the foundation of our Christian life is what he said in verse 20, our most holy faith, which is the same in verse 33 as the faith which was delivered unto all the saints. Now where does faith come from? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. The Word of God is central to our spiritual growth. I have yet to meet a strong, fruitful Christian that did not have a working knowledge of God's Word. If all we get on God's Word Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, we're not growing in the things of God. Watchman Nee, the old Chinese writer, I've written many of his books. Watchman Nee had a habit of reading the New Testament through every month. Read the New Testament from Matthew all the way to Revelation 12 times a year. And if you read his writings, you understand he had an understanding of the Word of God. The Chinese had a saying, and still do to my knowledge, no Bible, no breakfast. In other words, you don't eat breakfast till you read your Bible. If that was the case in a lot of American churches today, we'd all be hungry. The power of building the Christian life comes from prayer. Praying in the Holy Ghost, he said here. Now the Word of God and prayer have got to go together for our spiritual growth. If all we get is God's Word, the letter of the law, we're going to dry up. And if all we do is pray, we're going to blow up in the Spirit. But if we'll put the Word of God and prayer together, we'll grow up for the glory of God. If all I do is read the Word of God and do not pray, then I have light, but I do not have power to back that light up. And if all I do then is pray and don't read the Word of God, I have zeal without knowledge. With me? So it's important that we put prayer and the Word of God together, and you'll see some phenomenal things happen for the glory of the Lord. Now, Evangelist Billy Sunday used to tell his converts this. Three things. He practices every day. If you do, the, and you do it. If you now do these three things, we'll be successful, I think, in our Christian life. Number one, every day read God's Word so He can talk to us. Every day pray so we can talk to God. And every day talk to people about God so our faith can be confirmed and so they can be saved and whatever the case may be. So we talk to God through prayer. We let God talk to us through the Word of God. And we talk to people every day of our life telling them what we know about Jesus Christ and what He can do for them. If we can do those three things, I believe we'd be more successful in our Christian life than anything I can think about. Now what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? It means to pray according to the leading of the Spirit. As Pentecostals, I think I know what it means as well. How many times you get down to pray and you don't have anything to say? I mean, you, you want to, you just can't. You can't think of anything. You've heard me say it many times. Acts method of praying, A-C-T-S. I let the A stand for adoration. I go before the Lord, I don't want to pray. I say, God, we've got a problem. The problem is I need to talk to you and I don't want to. God, we have a problem. I need to talk to you and I'm sleepy. God, we've got a problem. I want to spend time with you, but this old flesh don't want to do this. However, I'm here and I'm going to praise you. I adore you for who you are. I start in the flesh because that's all I am. I start in the mind because that's all I got. And I just begin to adore him for who he is. I don't think of the grass is green and the birds that sing and the sky that's blue and the water that's nice. I adore him. I worship him. I praise him. I brag on him. You're a word, say this about you, God. I believe it. 
And then I let the C, A-C, I let the C stand for confession. I don't only confess the things I've done wrong or the things I've not done I should have. I confess what God's Word says about me. I don't have any self-esteem hardly. I I don't have a lot of self-worth in me. But I confess what God's Word says because I need that to get me through the day. You said I'm the apple of your eye. I may not feel like it, but that's what you think of me. You said I can do all things through you because you strengthen me. I confess what God's Word says. My sins are gone according to your Word. Your touch is upon me according to your word. I'm saved according to your word. I'm sanctified according to you. And I, I quote the word back to him. And then I begin to thank him for the blessings of life and thank him for all he's done for me, the things he's given. And by that time, I'm no longer a friend in the mind. I'm, I'm in the spirit now. And now when I enter into a time of supplication, A-C-T-S, supplication, I'm shucking corn now, friends. I mean, it's just the Holy Spirit. And then there are times I'm praying in tongues. That to me is praying in the Holy Spirit. He, know, he who searches the mind of God, he knows the mind of God by the way we pray in the Holy Spirit. He helps us approach the Father. Now the building process in the Christian life also involves the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and prayer. These things as precious as they are, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and prayer, if we're not careful, they can become monotonous and routine within our life. Let's be honest. Let's just be honest about it, friends. It can become routine and somewhat monotonous. So Jude added another factor in verse 21. Abiding in God's love. Abiding in God's love. He did not write, keep yourself saved. He said here, keep yourself in the love of God. Jesus made the same statement, continue you in my love. He said that. Uh, in John 59, continue ye in my love. The love of God is much more than a special feeling. The love of God is simply, I want to obey Him. I, I want you to be proud of me, Lord. I, I, I remember years ago when our son was just a little bitty fellow, he, he would scoot up flagpoles, he'd climb up anything he could, and, and we, we had this folding clothesline back in those days, one of these umbrella things, and, and we told him not to climb it because it felt like it would collapse on him and get hurt. One day I was at work and Donna called me, I can't find Nathan, I can't find Nathan. I looked, oh, I can't find him. And finally he comes after going around the house several times, I think. She finally found him underneath the house, underneath something there. And he came out and he said, Mommy, I was afraid you'd spank me because I sinned and I went and hid myself. What did you do? I climbed the, I climbed the clothesline. <laughs> you want to love the Lord by obeying him. He didn't want to break her heart because he disobeyed. We love the Lord by obeying. You know, the longer you've lived as married people, the deeper the love is. It's not about feeling. Thank God the feelings are there, but it's not about feeling to me anyway. Of course, I guess my feelings broke sometimes anyway. It's about the level of commitment. It's about the level of wanting the best for the one that you're with. It's about that commitment thing. And that's what it is. The longer I serve God, I want to be honest with you. With me, the feelings are not always there. Is it with you? Am I, am, I, am I being honest here? I don't always have feelings toward God. I've got commitment to the Lord. Amen. And that love to me is not about a feeling that comes and goes. That love to me is about a commitment I try to show daily. It's not rules and regulations. I want to be faithful to my God. Amen. I want to be faithful to my wife. I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to embarrass her. 
I won't do that with my God either. And it's a great thing about loving the Lord. It's not a, it's, it's simply, the Bible said in 1 John 2, 2, 2, 2, 5, but whosoever keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. And he also said in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. We abide in God's love as we read his word, as we obey his word, as we meditate upon his word, and as we simply hold that word of God, esteem it high within our life. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of God's Word. We should read it every day. We should have some regimen of studying it every day. We should have some means whereby we can apply it to our lives every day. And we should be able to give a man an answer to the hope within us because we know what the Word of God says. Now God's love is a holy love. It's not a shallow sentiment. Ye, ye that love the Lord hate evil. To love God means I love what He loves. To love God means I hate what He hates. And the Word of God is, is, is milk for the babies, and the Word of God is meat for the older in life. We build our Christian life on the foundation of faith and through the motivation of love. Faith and love. But we also need hope. He said here, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Our eyes are also lifted heavenward. You know why? Because looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of the Lord, Peter said. Now the word translated looking in Jude 21 means earnestly expecting. It's not just gazing up there, earnestly expecting earnestly expecting. What are we earnestly expecting? Our Lord and Savior who loves us to come back to take us home. Amen. People say that's ludicrous. That's crazy. If you read the Word of God, it's not. Amen. If you believe the Word of God, it's not. If you trust the Word of God, it's not. Amen. And that's where a lot of the liberal theologians come from. They, it can't happen. You, they want to mix intellect with Bible. They want to mix uh, Star Wars with the Bible. They, they, want to, they want to mix reason with the Bible. They want to mix intelligence with the Bible. Friend, it's a book of faith. And God has not contradicted one iota of his word. And if he said, I'm going away and come again, you can bank on it. He's coming again. And all the scriptures that were fulfilled about his first coming, uh, it was fulfilled to the iota, to the T. And I, I tell you what, that gives me assurance to know he's coming again uh, because the same Jesus that came the first time is written in the Bible. He's going to come the second time. Amen. Praise God. Are we looking expectantly for him to come in the clouds of glory. Praise God. The apostates can only be looking forward to the judgment of God. We're looking forward to home going with God. Praise the Lord. I got to hurry. Notice the three Christian graces of faith, hope, and love enable us to grow in our walk with God. We're able to build on a solid foundation where no decay can come in. You can't, build, you can't beat faith, hope, and love. You can't beat faith, hope and love. I got to hurry. Finally, let's look quickly at exercise spiritual discernment. Verses 22, 23. And are the same, have compassion, making a difference, and others will say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now what should be the attitude of Christians toward those who are being influenced by the apostates? Jude says we should exercise discernment 
in what we do with these people. He describes three different kinds of people. Again, let me read it from the uh, New American Standard. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. The first part here is the doubting, verse 22. There are people who are wavering. They're probably unstable souls. They've got saved, but they haven't gone very deep into things of God. Those are the kind of people that are extremely gullible when it comes to false teaching and apostates in the church. And one of the reasons being is because they often, uh, like a fish, they go after the glitter. They go after what looks good. They go after what feels good. They go after what's popular rather than what the Word of God says. This kind of ministry demands a great deal of love and patience. And we must keep in mind they're immature believers like little children. And they think they know right from wrong. They think they're more mature than the oldest Christian in the room. And they're stubborn. But one of the best ways to draw them away from false teachers is simply to magnify all they have in Jesus Christ and to share the love of God with them in a very practical, meaningful way. Love them, love them, and love them. I gotta hurry. We gotta show special love and concern for those type of people. Then he talked about the burning in verse 23. These people who, who've left the fellowship are not part of this apostate group. They, I, I, I remember years ago when I first got saved, there was an Assembly of God girl. She left and joined the Jehovah Witness. And I thought, how in the world can you do that? And then it dawned on me, if all we have is truth and no love, that's cruel. But if you have no truth and all love, that's cultish. And what this young woman was looking for was not the truth. She was looking for love and acceptance. As Christians, we should have the truth, but we should also have the love and acceptance. Because if we have the truth, we're going to love. If we have the truth, we're going to accept. You with me? So I think it's important to understand those things as well. So again, the burning, these are people left. So uh, with, with that being said, how do, you, how, do you, how do you snatch them back out of the clutches of false teachers? In Amos 4, God was reproving the people for not heeding his warnings of judgment, poverty, poor crops, drought, pestilence, war. Even judgments are like those that overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah. They were a brand that was plucked out of the fire, and yet they didn't appreciate God's mercy. And there's some, we just got to go to them and say, look, man, I love you too much to let you get away with this. I love you too much. I'm coming with the truth of God's word. I'm not here to judge you, but I love you. And I think you've gone into error, and God will give you wisdom to know how to deal with those type people. And then he talked about the dangers in verse 23. This, 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 this phrase means fear with caution. Now, we got to be careful in trying to save people out of error lest we ourselves be pulled down in error ourselves. If you see somebody drowning, you can drown yourself trying to save a drowning person. And I think that's what he's trying to tell us here. The principle Jude was laying down was that the stronger believer must never think that we're beyond satanic influence. We must never think that we're out of reach from, from Satan's tricks and, 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 and lies. We've got to be on guard ourselves when we're trying to help other people uh, who are drowning in the cesspool of deception. Defilement spreads rapidly. Defilement sp spreads quickly. And we that are spiritual need to act spiritual and know our own limitations in trying to reach people. But again, we can pray for them. And I thank God for that. i got to hurry. He said, commit yourself to Jesus Christ in verse 24 and 25. 
Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy to the only wise God and Savior be glory and majesty, dominion, power both now and forever. Let me just share a couple of things here with quickly if I can. Why should we walk in obedience to the word of God? So that Jesus Christ might receive honor and glory. The glory, he said the word here, glory. The sum total of all that God is and all that God does. Everything that God does is glorious. Notice he said majesty means greatness or magnificent. Only God is great. Only God is all powerful. Only God is almighty. He's not simply king. He is the king. He's not simply a savior or, or the savior. Thank God he is my savior. Everything he does is glory. Dominion has to do with God's sovereignty and rule over all things. The Greek word means strength, might, but it carries the idea of complete control over all things. Our God is dominant. And then Jude also used the word power, which means authority, and which is a right to use power. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ, but God has shared that power with we, his people. The works that Jesus did shall we do also, and greater works because we go to our Father. I pray that if you and I will do the things that Jude said, it will keep us from falling. In closing, let me say, stay in God's Word. Let everything be subjective to God's Word. Bring teaching and authority to God's Word. Bring preachers accountable to God's Word. I don't care what kind of a charismatic personality. I don't care what kind of a post hole digger they got by their name, PhD. Check it out by God's Word. God's Word will stand when the world's on fire. Amen.